What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are bettering themselves with fitness. Welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique, everyone. We got a really special guest here. Um, one of the first individuals that I really found in, I don't even call it the evidence-based community, but just the one of the real reasons why I wanted to go to for my PhD, uh, we have Dr. Grant Tinsley, sir. So for those individuals that don't know who you are, could you go ahead and please introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm a professor at Texas Tech at Grant Tinsley, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, I have a, we have a research lab here, mostly do research. I'll, I'll teach some classes in sports nutrition, uh, skeletal muscle physiology, ergogenic aids, things of that nature. But uh, the majority of my job is research. So we do a lot of research in human subjects. We have a nice thriving laboratory of undergraduates, master students, and PhD students, which uh, I know you all are acquainted with uh, at least one of my PhD students uh, who's excellent. So yeah, we do a lot of research, um, try to communicate that sort of to the broader fitness audience. Uh, we look into a lot of topics people are uh, typically interested in, including um, intermittent fasting, different dietary supplementation strategies, and then quite a bit with body composition assessment. So yeah, that's primarily what I do. I've been here since uh, fall 2016, um, and I was just recently tenured and promoted. So hopefully, I'll stay here for the for the long haul. So I have a really interesting question. You have been a professor for how long? Um, since fall 2016. So however long it's been since. So then. so about five, four or five years. Yeah. And for most, uh, and especially uh, some of our senior instructors. Uh, how's it, how is it being a young professional in this field and what advice can you give Adam? Uh, because he plans on and he wants to be an instructor as well, eventually, or researcher both. Yeah. So in terms of what it's like to be a young professional, uh, honestly, it's just a ton of fun. Um, it's nice to make the transition. Uh, the P PhD programs are interesting because you're already sort of transitioning from, um, being a student where you're kind of receiving all the information to, uh, being a leader and that you're you're teaching in the classroom, you're leading research studies, you're sort of in charge of, say, the master students and undergraduate students in the lab. So PhD programs are kind of naturally set up to be a nice transition. Um, so I think, in my opinion, if the PhD program is done right, by the time you're done, you're ready to kind of step in and be a successful faculty member, uh, sort of from day one. Uh, and thankfully, I had that experience. Uh, again, it's a ton of fun. I get to work with a lot of motivated, competent people who are excited about what we do. Uh, we get to look at questions people are interested in. It's fun not to be over in um, nothing against, like, say, chemistry or physics. I loved both those classes. But, you know, there's some areas of research where you do the research and people outside your very specific field probably never care about the results, will probably never understand the results. But doing things kind of related to fitness, it's nice because you can communicate that to a broader audi audience who is really hungry for this information and interested in learning about um, what, what current research is saying about dietary supplements or body composition, sports nutrition, and all that. So yeah, tons of fun, fun to get to chat with uh, individuals such as yourself. Again, it's um, you know an honor for people to be interested in, in our work. Trying to remember the next half. Yeah, advice, advice for Adam. Um, Oh, try to maintain some balance, I guess, in the PhD program. Um, I, I think you do. You know, from what I see, at least from from social media, it seems like you definitely have have the work ethic required, have the level of passion and interest required to um, succeed. You know, it's it's easy when you're doing something you love to get completely consumed by it. It's good for all of us, I think, to have outlets um, outside of work. Though, for some of us, our outlets like lifting look a little bit like some of the things we do, um, say here in the lab. So. 
Uh, I don't have any ground groundbreaking advice for you, but if you have uh, other questions, I'm happy to chat about it more. No, I definitely appreciate it. Yeah, I think it still hasn't hit me yet. And kind of with all of our, we call it the little Einstein gang at USF, all our GAs. Um, it's kind of cool that majority of us are going to get our PhD or we know a lot of people from USF are going to get it. Um, and it still is weird to say like, for the rest of my life, I can study exercise and teach exercise. So it's like you said, it's a lot of fun. And if you're passionate and you have a lot of people surrounding you, um, it's it's almost a dream come true. And I, again, it still hasn't hit me yet. Um, because if you would ask me two years ago what I was going to do, I, this definitely was not it. So um, I appreciate you. I appreciate my mentors at USF and all the individuals I've surrounded myself, including you, Chris, including you, Chris. So but let's go ahead and, you know, I, I, I guess we can turn it uh, a different realm. So you um, just made a post today about your uh, overfeeding study. Um, and I'm pretty sure I first heard about that um, when you were on the podcast with uh, Omar Youssef and Eric Helms, if that's correct. I remember you talking about a little bit about that. Um, could you go over that study a little bit and then how you, the annoying process of the publication <laughs> process of that? Yeah. So this is breaking, yeah, breaking news. Uh, yeah. The overfeeding. So, you know, we previously done fasting work, so we were starving people and then, you know, we felt bad because we'd done that for a while. So we decided to force feed them like swing to the complete opposite <laughs> end of the spectrum. Um, but no, yeah. In fall 2019, we did what I think is a really interesting data collection and we set it up to just give us a ton of data. Um, some of it's related to our body composition methods and um, a whole host of details there, which I, I don't need to get into right now, but, but in terms of the actual intervention, we were essentially um, enrolling resistance trained males. And these were people who met minimum strength requirements and resistance training requirements, but weren't highly trained. Um, so they're at least past the initial adaptations, but they still had some potential for um, quite a bit of gains, which is what we wanted. We essentially required all participants to gain a minimum of a pound a week with, with no upper limit. Um, we, to do that, we more or less asked everyone to consume their normal diet plus a mass gainer. We gave them, uh, we'd weigh in before each resistance training session, just for kind of a quick and dirty look at compliance, um, based on their weekly average of body mass. And if they weren't making weight, we'd have them consume more of the supplement, eat more food. It was really, uh, you, you know, pretty straightforward. We just wanted them to gain the weight is what we wanted. So, um, we had this, this overfeeding study. It was kind of, the design was unique in that we had all participants doing the same intervention. And um, we were one of the primary things we we're interested in was how the rate of body mass gain affected the proportion of body mass gained as fat free mass versus fat mass. And there have only been a few studies on this, but traditionally, what people I think tend to do or tend to want to do is to prescribe two different rates of weight gain. Um, but as you can probably imagine, that's that's really difficult to get participants to comply with, even by no fault of their own. Um, but it's particularly if you're looking at two rates of weight gain that aren't that different. Um, say you want someone gaining a pound a week versus half a pound a week, you could, you could very much see how people might sort of cross over from the groups. The, the people that are trying to eat half a pound a week, they're like, oh, I need to gain weight. I'm eating more. Even I'm getting exact diet plan. I'm trying to eat more and they accidentally gain a little bit more. And now they gained a pound a week and they look more like someone from the other group. Conversely, you might have a hard gainer in the pound a week group and they just have trouble putting the weight on and they, they don't gain enough. Um, so we saw a lot of experimental challenges with prescribing rates of weight gain. So we took kind of a different view of this and said, okay, we know even in response to what we're considering the same intervention, which is consume your normal diet, uh, consume this mass gainer, we'll target a minimum amount of weight gain. We knew we would see quite a bit of variability in the responses. Um, that's just what we, what we expected. And that is what we saw. So what we were trying to do with the analysis that I posted about earlier in this paper we just published was looking at how well we could explain the different adaptations 
uh, not only in body composition, but in performance with mass maximal strength, uh, muscular endurance, and also in uh, resting metabolic rate. Uh, and to do this, we worked with a biostatistician and included a whole host of predictor variables that would be relevant to um, adaptations, including uh, baseline values and changes in uh, calorie intake, macronutrient intake, uh, body total body composition, muscle thickness, physical activity levels, uh, resistance training volume, uh, baseline strength, changes in strength. So some of the outcomes were also predictors for other outcomes. It was a large, very complex analysis that uh, thankfully, our biostatistician was uh, an expert in, in stats was there. So he looked through all that. But at the end of the day, um, we weren't able to very accurately predict the resistance training adaptations. And th that's, this is largely probably because we need an enormous sample um, to really understand all the things that go into the resistance training adaptations we see. Uh, we did build a simplified model, getting back to kind of one of our initial questions about the rate of body mass gain in composition. We built sort of a simplified model just tried to, to try to get an estimate of what rate of body mass gain um, per week corresponded with all of weight being gained as fat-free mass. And on average, that came out to be a little over half a percent per week. Uh, and this was just a six-week study, so it ended up being, I think, 3.3% um, over the six weeks ended up uh, was kind of the point at which we saw on average people gaining all of the mass as fat-free mass uh, with faster rates, you know, more fat mass gained at faster rates. Uh, and then some even recomp happening at slower rates of body mass gain. So again, that's a little bit um, tentative, but yeah, that's the big picture of that study. There's a lot of nitty gritty in the, in the article. If people want it, it's open access. So it's freely available. Uh, the journal abbreviation is JFMK. If you just Google that, it'll it'll come up with their page, and you can can find the paper. And something really cool is that a lot of people don't even see because all they see is the final project, the final paper publication. Is all of these subjects that are in every single one of these studies, they need coaches and they need help and they need guidance and they need to be held accountable. Uh, a lot of people that are doing this for research is at least fully committed, hopefully. But I mean, at my time at University of South Florida, when I was helping out with Dr. Campbell in his lab, I usually help with dieting. So calories restriction and the like the common things is like, oh, I'm just way too hungry or oh, I was getting too hangry. But what are some like big issues that you had with overfeeding? I mean, the common ones I see with clients is like, oh, I just, I'm way too full. But I mean, I'm sure you got more than that. Uh, we got some, we got some in that vein. So um, we make fun. We have lots of it, bags of it laying around the lab. We made fun. The, the mass gainer we got was primarily strawberry flavored. So we made lots of fun of the strawberry mass gainer. We, we did supervise all the resistance, resistance training in the lab. And we'd have them walk down to our lab, give them their strawberry mass gainer. They'd have to consume it in front of us. So we definitely got some complaints about that. Uh, in terms of the overall overfeeding, we just had, we had some people comment about how they felt like they were hot and sweaty all the time. Uh, we saw some pretty large increases in resting metabolic rate as, as expected with the overfeeding, uh, um, protocol. I, I think the most entertaining one I, that can stick in my mind. And again, this data collection was this fall will have started two years ago. So it's been kind of a long process for the data collection that fall and all the data analysis and everything since then. But I think one participant commented that he felt like he was eating so much that there was a fire in his belly like all the time that he felt like he had fire in his belly. So I think that one I stuck with me just because it was a, a little bit out there, but, but no, similar to what you said, some of it, um, some people loved it. They're like, okay, this is a reason someone's telling me I have to gain weight. This is easy. I'm, 
uh, you know, they either gain weight easily or just don't mind being in a surplus. Um, others, they, they're like, oh, I feel like I'm eating all the time, but they weren't making the weight. So we'd have to sit down with them and, and go through it a little more, uh, a little more granular level and, uh, help them identify kind of what's happening and, and kind of do the reverse of some of the things you would look at with, a um, normal dieting intervention where you're trying to have a deficit and you're trying to manage hunger and, you know, have foods with high water and fiber content, all this, we, you know, we're kind of giving recommendations at some point that were the opposite of all those recommendations you give for someone who's, who's trying to get a deficit and not, not feel miserable. Now, could you go over a little bit more in, I guess, detail, um, or maybe I misheard, but what was the, I guess, the, the goal rate of weight gain? And then where was that, that peak in that six weeks where, okay, now we started instead of more lean body mass, we started to turn predominantly uh, fat mass with that. Yeah. So in terms of the intervention, we were just trying to have them hit at least a pound a week of body mass gain. Um, and that was again, just kind of a, a quick and dirty average, um, from the, the three weigh-ins immediately prior to the resistance training sessions. But in terms of the standardized assessments, when we took, you know, in the fasted state, all our procedural controls at the beginning and end of the study, that's what we used for the actual rate of body mass gain they achieved over the six weeks. So yeah, the point at which we saw all of body mass gained as fat-free mass was around 0.55% of body mass increase per week. And then increases above that is generally where we'd see um, fat mass being gained in addition to fat-free mass. And at slower rates, there were individuals who were recomping, who were increasing um, fat-free mass uh, while, while decreasing fat mass. Gotcha. So now for for anyone trying to, I guess, overfeed or going into a bulk, uh, would you recommend a certain maybe caloric range to increase? Or are you just kind of giving, obviously that mass gainer was how many calories extra up on top of their current diet intake? I think it started out around 600 kcal. I believe it was because we started them out at half serving. I think a full serving of this one was something like 1200 calories. So we started them out at half serving along with their habitual diet to see if that was sufficient. Um, so yeah, the reason why we focus so much on body mass gain is, um, as you all I'm sure know from your, your experience with these studies, um, self-reported dietary intake, even if you have food scales, which we've used in the past, even if, even if you have someone who's pretty good at them, there's quite a bit of error involved. Um, and based on things we'd seen in past studies, we, we felt much more confident basing everything on, on body mass. So just by definition, if they were gaining the body mass, they were in a surplus. Um, and we really went that route rather than, um, prescribing exact calorie intake, partially because of some of the adaptations you see with overfeeding. Um, so, you know, like hard gainers, some people just, you know, have a harder time gaining naturally. Some of that can be due to things like fidgeting, like sitting here fidgeting. If I'm in a surplus and you could prescribe a, you know, calorie surplus that you think could be sufficient for someone to gain a pound of body mass a week. Um, but between, you know, increased, uh, non-exercise activity, thermogenesis through increased RMR, through all this, they, they could burn off a substantial portion and really not meet the rate of weight gain you want. Um, which as a side note is another reason why we went away from the design where we'd be prescribing exact rate of weight gain for each group. Um, but because of that, we still collected the dietary intake information and we included that as predictors, uh, in those nutrient intake variables as predictors in our regression models. But at the end of the day, we're like, by definition, we're just going to go with energy balance principles. If they're increasing body mass, they are in the surplus we want. If they're not, then by our definition, they're not in the surplus we want. It sounds like a fun study, of especially if you're telling me to gain some weight. Just yeah. 
I think it would be hard though to do it via mass gainer. And I've had a few of them way back in the college days as a freshman. And you're just like, golly, this tastes like chalk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not the best. Doing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess let's swing the pendulum the other way and kind of get into, I would say what you're mostly predominantly known for, which is like intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding. Um, and I think a lot of people struggle with actually hard definitions. So if you don't mind, could you actually define those terms before we get into a little bit more detail about them? Yes. So I'll give the caveat that I usually give, which is that not everyone agrees. Um, I think this is a evidence-based view of it, but there are some people who uh, even in the literature approach it a little bit differently. Uh, so I define intermittent fasting as a very broad term, essentially for dietary programs that focus on when you eat, not what you eat. And that also incorporate periods of fasting that are longer than a typical overnight fast. Um, and a typical overnight fast, of course, varies. Um, some people naturally follow eating patterns that look really similar to some time-restricted eating programs, uh, which we'll define in a second. Um, with that said, at least in the United States, the median fasting time um, is, is relatively short. Some data I've seen have estimated it at only nine hours as a median fasting time. So there are many individuals who do essentially, you know, eat from the time they wake up till the time they go to bed and eating broadly defined as any, any intake of calories. Um, so again, intermittent fasting, broad term, you have these regularly occurring periods of fasting. Overall, the programs are focused on when you eat, not what you eat. Uh, because of that, they could be combined with other dietary interventions that are focused more on things like macronutrients. Uh, and honestly, I think this is one reason intermittent fasting get, has, has remained popular is because people can combine it with the types of foods they want to eat. They could do intermittent fasting paired with a high carb diet or paired with keto or paired with anything in between. So people seem to be within relatively normal intermittent fasting programs. People seem to be able to do the timing component relatively easily if they can still eat some of the foods they like and still stick to some of the macronutrient ratios they prefer. Um, so within intermittent fasting, one of the main subtypes, and I'd say the most popular form is time-restricted feeding, also known as time-restricted eating. Uh, and that's simply when you limit all calorie intake in a day to a certain number of hours. So the most popular implementation seems to be about an eight-hour eating period each day. Um, again, there are some people who just don't eat breakfast. They eat lunch and they just naturally don't, don't eat late at night. And they're sort of following an eight-hour eating window to begin with. So um, I think that's a, I don't know if it's a gripe, but something some people say is like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't think this is a real thing. Cause I just eat like that anyways. And, and that's fine for other people. It's a, it's a very substantial change in their diet to eat all their calories in only an eight hour period of time. And now, go ahead, Chris. And I think, uh, that's really important to note. And if you're out there listening and you've ever considered doing intermittent fasting or time restricted feeding, or just trying to limit yourself if you are someone who is always hungry or eat late night cravings, or you just eat very uh, abruptly, the time restricted feeding is really good because it gives you a certain time frame. It allows you to eat whatever you want. And if you're outside of that time frame, you can't, you can't eat. Um, very plain and simple. Uh, but another question I have for you, Dr. Tinsley is, have you ever fasted and what was the longest fast you've done? Yeah. So I have, uh, I'd say pretty frequently, I'd say for the majority of the last at least five plus years, I've employed some form of time restricted eating. Sometimes it's very, 
um, basic and it might be like just cutting off eating a certain time in the evening, not because there's anything magical about the food I'm going to eat after that, but just because by a certain point in the evening, I've hit the calorie intake I need for the day. I've hit the macros I need for a day and anything I else I eat after that point will probably not be uh, promoting my, my fitness and health goals. So um, I, I have implemented it fairly regularly. Um, in terms of a single fast, I haven't gone longer than 24 hours. Uh, and I never did that super regularly, but there's a period of time where just with my schedule, it worked out well to do a single 24 hour fast every couple of weeks. Um, and that was a nice way to get at that point is maintenance. It was a nice way where I could be in a little bit of a surplus, um, each day and then have a 24 hour fast, um, which would just be like from evening to the next evening that evening, I broke the fast, just one large high protein meal, and then kind of go back to my normal routine. And again, that was just a time where that was the easiest way for me to um, hit maintenance calories. And I was happy with, um, you know, performance and all that. So I haven't gone longer than 24 hours in individual fasts in most intermittent fasting programs don't use fast longer than 24 hours, but some do like true alternate day fasting would, would have regularly occurring 36 hour fasts. Um, but I'd say the way most people implement them, they're probably not even hitting 24 hours too often. Um, though, you know, there's certainly some exceptions. And I think it's really cool that Dr. Campbell actually at USF has his students go through a 36 hour fast. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Unfortunately myself, I have hypoglycemia, so I can't really go long periods without eating. Uh, but is that something you've ever done or what's your input on that? On the 36 hour fast. Yeah. Or yeah. So I, I personally haven't pushed out quite to that. Um, what about having your, what about having your students do fasting as an I assignment? Uh, no, I haven't done that for an assignment or anything like that. <laughs> um, unrelated to anything I've asked them to do. I think there are a few students in the lab who have uh, toyed around with intermittent fasting programs just to uh, more or less see what the participants are doing in general. We like to, you know, if we're gonna have participants use a particular device or go through a certain exercise protocol, um, we like to have gone through it to know a little bit, like, you know, what it feels like. And that would, that would be true on the, um, dietary protocols too. you know, taste the strawberry masking or all of that. Um, so no, I haven't, haven't required that of students, but I think several have played around with it just to, you know, kind of, again, have that experiential basis where if they're talking to a participant about it, they can say like, oh yeah, I know when, when I did this, this is what I did to combat the hunger you're feeling or, you know, something of that nature. Yeah, I definitely think it going through that experience and being able to make it a little bit more relatable to the subjects or to whomever you're going to, I guess, prescribe this to definitely helps um, make it more relatable to it. But um, throughout your, your experience in the research that is out there that you've conducted, what are some, I guess, positives and maybe even some negatives with intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding uh, uh, for subjects that are either trying to lose weight, perform, or even I would go as far if we want to continuously do the, the gaining. So what, is, what are all of those benefits with utilizing this tool? Yeah. So I think the benefits are mostly at sort of an individual level. If we look big picture at the research overall, it would indicate that intermittent fasting in general and time-restricted eating specifically is a viable, but not inherently superior option for say, we'll start out with the weight loss context for um, reducing calorie intake, promoting weight loss, fat loss, et cetera. Um, so because it's not inherently superior at this point, um, there, there are some, as a, as a side note, this is kind of one of the current questions. Is there any benefit to these fasting programs beyond just simply cutting calories? There's a small amount of evidence to show unique benefits in really specific contexts. Right now, those are in, spe again, specific enough contexts and the magnitude is small enough that it's definitely not at the level where um, anyone should confidently state everyone needs to be fasting for their health, for example. 
So at this point, just a viable option, not, not inherently superior. Um, kind of similar to what you were saying a minute ago, Chris, I think one of the biggest benefits is just that it's simple. There are some people who, you know, recognize calorie intake is important, recognize if they need to lose weight, they need a calorie deficit, but they really don't want to track calories. Um, they hate it. They, it's just annoying to them. It doesn't fit into their lifestyle. Uh, if they can achieve the calorie deficit that they want in terms of say, promoting a certain rate of body mass loss by something as simple as eat between this hour and this hour. Um, lots of people love that. So again, if you can, um, if you're looking, uh, or talking to someone who, who they want something very simple, uh, that's a positive aspect. Again, kind of going back to something we chatted about earlier. Another positive aspect is that it's not inherently touching the foods you eat. Um, of course we know what you eat still matters. There are other things that could be addressed, you know, macronutrient content in the diet, the overall, um, say presence of processed food in the diet, uh, relative to more satiating, satiating foods, whole host of things, but, um, inherently it's not touching what you eat. So you can even have people who are eating a relatively nutrient dense, relatively health promoting diet. Um, but they're, they're simply eating too much. This, this could be a very simple option for them. Um, downsides for some people, definitely the hunger. So there are some people who, and we've seen this in our studies, there are some people who, um, say they hate it by then they're like, I'm never going to do this again. I'm going to eat breakfast every day for the rest of my life. I don't enjoy this at all. I'm hungry all morning. And then I feel full during my eating window. And then I'm hungry at night. Uh, we have other people who feel like that for a week or two, and then they feel really good. And like, wow, this doesn't even really feel like I'm cutting my calories or something like that, but I'm happy with the fat loss I've experienced, uh, for example. So, so for some, the hunger for some social, uh, enjoyment, you can kind of schedule around it, but say, you're someone that has like a late night social life and you don't like cutting off calorie intake at 8 PM because you want to enjoy, um, some adult beverages or some food late at night or something like that. Uh, of course you could work in days where you're, um, either shifting your eating window or taking like an, an off day from the feeding and fasting windows. But for some people, uh, they don't enjoy that. We've only had a one or two participants cite that as an actual reason they stopped our studies, but that is a factor. Um, there's a possibility that for some individuals, it could contribute to disordered eating, particularly in the binge eating realm. Um, I would give the caveat that the couple studies that have looked at this haven't supported that at the group level. Um, those have been with specific forms of intermittent fasting. So not all forms have been looked at, but um, without being an expert in eating disorders, I would assume there's a large amount of individual variability in the types of things that might um, exacerbate someone's uh, maybe disordered eating tendencies. So I'd say it's something to be aware of, at least if, um, you know, you or a client has say history of binge eating disorder, it would be worth considering because it is big picture, a pattern where you have periods of complete abstention and periods of higher intake that could, for some people turn into a binge. Um, and I think that can relate to people's success with it too. I think there are some people who tend to overeat during the eating periods because they're kind of, you know, coming off the fast and anticipating needing to do another fast. There are other people who can eat really normally. They're like, yeah, you know, I missed a meal. I'd normally eat, but it's not hard for me to just eat normally during my eating window and then go back to another fast. Um, so I'd say those are some of the positives and negatives in terms of, um, like performance and all that. I'd say there's, there's definitely no performance benefit of intermittent fasting. Um, the only exception, and it's not really an exception, but one of our studies in cyclists showed an increase in peak power output relative to body mass. Um, but really the absolute power output stayed the same in the fasting group. It was just the body mass decreased. So that metric really just improved as a function of body mass decreasing. Um, so no, no inherent performance benefit, but with that said, in all of our studies in resistance training individuals, 
we haven't seen that performance adaptations are compromised by the fasting program. Uh, and this is, you know, in the context of adequate protein, in the context of uh, eating periods that are seven um, hours a day or a little bit longer. Uh, so this is not an incredibly aggressive protocol, but within the context of those protocols, um, individuals can improve their performance um, just as much as people consuming breakfast and eating over a longer period of time each day, um, say 13 hours or so. Um, I think I hit on most of the points. I guess you mentioned also weight gain. Personally, we haven't done a study on weight gain with intermittent fasting. My general advice when people ask it is, I, I don't know if you want to do that to yourself because with some of the things we talked about when we were talking about the overfeeding study, um, for some individuals, there can be discomfort associated with the magnitude of surplus there, um, you know, needing to achieve to, to gain the body mass they want to gain. Shoving all that, that energy intake into a shorter period of time is, is probably just making you making things harder on you without a clear benefit. Um, it'd be an interesting study just in the off chance. There's some, you know, some benefit. Uh, it's a little hard to see it, in my opinion, it'd probably just make the surplus harder to achieve by, by pushing all the calorie intake into a shorter period of time, but we haven't looked at that explicitly. So, uh, those are my main thoughts, but if I lost, if I missed any areas or any parts of your question, feel free to let me know. No, I think, oh. it, I th do you have a question about that, Adam? No, I mean, I wanted to go a different realm um, because it seems like it's a really hot topic. And when I was at, uh, I don't want to call it a conference, but it was uh, the ProVisic experience. We had Dr. Joe Kalemski on, I want to say that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, and he went into good, great amount of detail with intermittent fasting or fasting in general um, on the topic of metabolic flexibility. Um, how I guess you can become a little bit more dependent on body fat and you can kind of specifically time your meals where you can eat a little bit more and still tap into more body fat stores and get a little bit leaner with all of that. So I kind of wanted to know if you had any input on specifically uh, metabolic flex flexibility with health and even body fat loss. Yeah, I don't have a lot to say on that point because it would be, it'd be a pretty long and nuanced discussion. So there are some ways in which you can become at certain durations of fasting um, less flexible. So for example, you'll become in, in, over the course of a single fast, as you transition into a little bit longer fast, um, you'll become, um, less sensitive to insulin as like a protective mechanism to maintain, um, energy homeostasis in the body. So there are some, I, I wouldn't personally totally agree with, uh, those, those broad statements, um, categorically about fasting. There are probably maybe certain contexts in which that can be true. Uh, it is certainly true that as you, remain in a fasted state, your body is shifting from, you know, primarily relying on carbohydrate oxidation for fuel to, um, getting a greater proportion of its energy from, um, fats, but that's kind of a natural, natural function of no dietary carbohydrate. And then after an overnight fast, um, you've, you've seen some depletion of liver glycogen, depending on what that, um, you know, last meal or last several meals were. Um, but certainly as you continue past an overnight fast, you get to a point where you've almost, um, totally de depleted liver glycogen. Uh, that's not true in the muscle just because the, the muscle can't liberate its glycogen as blood glucose, since it lacks the enzyme to release the glucose out into the bloodstream. Um, but you certainly based on again, depleting the carbohydrate stores that are available to the whole body, like liver glycogen, um, you see increased reliance on fat at some point you do in, in healthy individuals, see maintenance of blood glucose for tissues that are sort of obligatory glucose consumers. Um, so there's a, there is a whole host of interesting metabolic things going on related to carbohydrate and fat metabolism. But, um, in my opinion, it'd probably be a little, uh, it'd be simplifying it too much to say like, oh, you'll, you'll for sure have improved metabolic flexibility if you're, 
your fasting. Um, it, it is within the realm of possibility, but again, probably with quite a bit of context added to the statement. Yeah. So now what, what would you say like with flex or metabolic flexibility in the essence, okay, we're trying to now go more of a ketogenic route, right? Higher fat because you're consuming more higher fat diet, obviously you're going to burn more fat. But once we start, I guess, introducing more carbohydrates into your diet, would your tolerance or sensitivity to carbohydrates be less or would that, that would be, that would increase. So it would take longer to actually digest those carbohydrates, make you more insulin sensitive. Yeah. So on that, I probably, I, I don't look too much at the literature in that exact area. So I don't want to say too much on, on the keto side. All I'd say is that the studies I'm aware of, um, say in the inactive individuals, um, even if you go on a period of say a ketogenic diet, um, when you reintroduce carbohydrate, there've been enzymatic changes that make it more difficult to metabolize carbohydrate. So, um, decreases essentially in glycolytic enzymes that would allow, um, for normal or optimal, um, catabolism of glucose for, for energy production. Um, and I think corresponding, uh, detriments in high intensity, uh, exercise performance as well. And some of that has, it was from Louise Burke's lab and some of the work she did. And I think Trent Stellingworth as well. So, um, that's the main literature I'm aware of just from some of the sports nutrition, um, literature we look at, but, uh, definitely in terms of like the general population and metabolic flexibility, I wouldn't, um, be confident stating too much on that front right now. So we intermittent fasting. If you're listening to this, if you're trying to gain mass or gain any weight, you probably shouldn't do it. Uh, it's just going to make it way harder on you. Uh, but let's go a little bit further into the weight loss process of it. You can do the average individual, which I think intermittent fasting is extremely beneficial for, but then you have the lines of bodybuilders, someone who will do absolutely anything, uh, to get the job done. And now the current period that we're in is Ramadan where fasting for some is a requirement. There's no if, ands, or buts. So how do, how does that impact one's ability? If you're a bodybuilder where protein timing might be beneficial, or is it not as beneficial if you just hit your total protein requirements in your window that you're allowed to eat? Yeah. So that's a great question. And, um, yeah, like you mentioned, a, a currently relevant topic, at least the date we're sitting here, sitting right in the middle of um, Ramadan 2021. Um, yeah, this is a really interesting area. I would, I would say in some senses, someone that's purely concerned with physique has it a little better off than someone who's active and has a large sport performance requirement. So there are sometimes in, in recent history, including say like the 2012, uh, London Olympics, where, you have individuals who truly need like maximal sports performance who are fasting for Ramadan and facing, um, you know, a whole host of issues there related to carbohydrate availability and dehydration and, and all kinds of things in terms of someone that's purely interested in physique. Um, I guess the, my sort of recommendations, I guess, to minimize, um, the effects. So if, if you are, well, first, I guess, as a caveat, some, you know, some listeners would certainly be familiar with this, but something interesting about, Ramadan is sort of how much of a challenge that will be will vary by year and geographical location. So where it's falling this year, we do, you know, we're essentially entering the um, close to the summer months uh, where there's quite a bit of daylight. Uh, of course, other years where Ramadan falls uh, in the winter, the day daytime is much shorter. And of course, based on geographical location, you may have a period of time that's much more manageable. 
Um, I think I remember from the, again, for the 2012 uh, London Olympics, I think there was about 16 hours of daylight on the opening ceremony day. So, I mean, a long period. And it's not not just the abstention from food, but abstention from, from fluid as well. Um, yeah, so a lot of challenges there. But in terms of body comp, I think you um, really all you can do is um, within the context of adhering to this, I would recommend um, certainly not missing the pre-sunrise meal. Um, so, you know, even if it would be tempting to, um, sleep and it could disrupt your sleep, getting up earlier, potentially I would not miss the pre-sunrise meal. I'd have a relatively hearty meal with a relatively hearty amount of protein. Um, similarly, of, of course, uh, after sunset, having, um, essentially the, the remainder of the calories you need to get up to your caloric goal. Uh, and as a side note, this might be a time where you're not necessarily trying to gain weight, or it might be more difficult with just two meals a day. Uh, to gain weight, you can kind of consider your goals and say like, okay, even if big picture long-term, I'm trying to gain body mass and I want to be in a surplus, this might be a month where I'm just going to try to maintain, um, body mass, try to maintain body comp for this month. Um, because my eating schedule might not be ideal relative to what I'd normally like to do relative to training, et cetera. So yeah, it's a large pre-sunrise meal, um, large post-sunset meal trying to hit the protein goal. Um, with that said, though, it, this might, again, be a time where you have to settle for being okay at the lower end of the optimal range. So if you're looking at, say, 1.4 to 2 plus grams per kilogram, uh, you'll have to see what's achievable between that pre-sunrise meal and post-sunset meal. You might be able to get up there, but if you're pushing, especially 2 grams per kilogram or higher, it, it might not really be feasible without substantial GI distress or like extreme fullness and just um, you know feeling awful. And I know, you know if we're talking about bodybuilders, they'll, they'll push through it for the results. But um, it's something to consider. It might be a time, again, where you just need to think about what is realistic for this month. I'm going to try to maintain energy intake. I'm going to try to maintain my body comp. Um, I'm going to try to schedule my training sessions either early morning where I've um, recently eaten or say in the evening um, after I've eaten, try to you know maintain as much of the training stimulus and performance as I can, given um, the fact that you know I, I know this may not be the optimal training month. Um, of course, fluid intake also pre-sunrise and post-sunset will be uh, critical because you probably will accrue um, some level, maybe not, not extreme, but some level of um, slight dehydration during the day. Uh, if you're active during the day for other reasons or, or occupationally and you've lost sweat and all that, you'd have to be particularly attentive to this. Um, yeah, so those are a few um, big picture thoughts. I think it can be managed. And, and you know, as you all know, the more elite someone is, the more I'd say potentially detrimental it could be. If you had someone who is like, Olympia ready bodybuilder, you know, they might see more detriments than someone who's like a, a recreational bodybuilder or just like identifying as a bodybuilder training for body comp. But, um, you know, it's not like every single thing is perfectly dialed in. So there's some context there, but those would be just a few general recommendations I'd have. Yeah, I definitely think, you know, Ramadan for me, and, and since it's definitely me just literally switching my whole routine of, okay, I'm getting up, I'm getting that pre, uh, pre-sunrise meal, um, going really back to work and almost having naps throughout the day just so I can stay up later, catch my meal, and really kind of consume those calories that I need and catch up on hydration. So not a fan of it because I hate being a night owl um, and I hate being, I guess, less productive throughout the day. Uh, but like you said, you just kind of have to check yourself and say, okay, this month is, you know, kind of be almost like a bare minimum month. We're just trying to get by as, mo as much as you can. Um, but I kind of wanted to 
one thing that I always hear with Ramadan or even fasting itself is right. You, your hunger itself starts to suppress or one, one of the terms that I was always told when I was growing up is your, your stomach literally strength. That's why you're not hungry. And I always notice this throughout my period of Ramadan is like, I'm just not as hungry. Like I'll eat, but it's like half a meal. And I'm just like, I can't eat this anymore. So do you know of what physiological reasoning that is? I don't have a great answer there. That's interesting. Is it, do you feel like your appetite suppressed both in the morning and the evening when you eat in the morning? I can down a bunch of food, but once it's like, we're going throughout the day, I'll, I'll get hungry at that two o'clock period. Um, but then that's when I'm like, okay, Adam, we're going to go ahead just take a nap. Um, try to, you know, suppress that. Um, but once I'm post-workout, I'm like, okay, let's try to chow down on some food. I'll literally eat half of my meal. I'm just like, I, I can't put this down. And I remember growing up, like I said, um, all of you know family members were just saying, it's just a natural process. Your stomach's shrinking um, and stuff like that. But I always wondered if there was actually some physiological reasoning of why I literally just cannot eat during that or during that nighttime period. Yeah, I think I, I don't have a perfect answer for you. My, my guess would be, you know, similar to some other things, it's probably partially physiologically, physiologically driven and partially behaviorally um, driven, even, uh, I don't know this for a fact, but I, I would think that, um, habituation to a certain meal size would, um, play into it to some extent. So like if you say, I don't know if you do, but say you normally eat five meals space throughout the day. Um, I could foresee it being relatively difficult, even if you are in an energy deficit for the day. And even if you did feel hungry initially, I could see it being relatively difficult to dramatically exceed, um, say that the energy intake you normally have at a single meal. So, um, that might be more of on, on like a behavioral or psychological side, though. I think it would, it probably has some physiological implications too. Um, the size of your stomach does certainly change like throughout the day based on its contents and everything. Um, in terms of like actual long-term changes in it, I don't, I don't know for sure, but, um, I lost my train, lost where I started that sentence. I started it somewhere, <laughs> lost it in the middle. So no, I don't have a, I don't have a great answer for that. Um, other than I could, I could definitely see on the behavioral side, on the physiological side, I, uh, I'm not certain uh, what would be involved there. Gotcha. I know uh, there was uh, the hummingbird from the University of Stanford. He was talking about more of like a, a circadian rhythm with just your eating patterns. And that's probably just thrown off. And I'm assuming there's, there's got to be something there physiologically. I just haven't looked up at it. But I just, again, just always was told it, your, your stomach's shrinking, your stomach's just changing, um, and you're just not able to do that. So what I've tried to do now is literally eat a little bit more caloric dense food like pizza and stuff like yeah. that just to make sure I'm hitting my caloric needs. But um, it's tough. Um, but I think, you know, you provided a lot of good points with individuals that are fasting through Ramadan is making sure you're getting up and almost just trial and error of thinking what is going to work for you and whatever your current goals is, but then also realizing, Hey, this is probably not the best month to maximize um, your potential goals right now for sure. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and you are right. There's definitely pretty well documented circadian disruption during the month of Ramadan. And some of it relates to sleep, whether it's um, staying up, staying up later with um, some of like the social aspect or feasting in some contexts, um, getting up earlier, if you are napping during the day, there are a variety of things that can throw it off. And it's interesting as curious that it was in the evening because um, there are some data showing that like biological hunger would peak around 8 PM, um, which would be a time, you know, a time around which you may be eating that meal, but it's certainly within the realm of possibility that would um, not be true for certain individuals and also shift with some of the circadian um, disruption in Ramadan. So, so um, I think you're right. It probably would come back to anecdote for the individual lot on, on what can I, what can I do? What can't I do? 
Adam, I sort of have a question for you because of when you stopped over the other day, I had completely forgot that you were fasting and I'm like, Hey man, do you want water or anything? So I guess this is for anyone that is looking to do intermittent fasting or someone who's going through Ramadan right now, Adam, what are, what are some common things you run into or issues you run into besides stupid friends that are asking you if you want stuff that you can't have? No, it's not good. I mean, the, the hardest thing about it, honestly, is literally just switching my schedule. Um, I looking at myself in the, uh, the screen right now, I got bags under my eyes and you just switching a lot of what you do. And I, like I said, I'm not a person that stays up really late, but that's literally what I'm having to do right now is I'm up until almost like two, 3 a.m. doing work or that's where now I feel like I'm more productive because of being, I guess, nutrient deprived and stuff like that. Um, and now switching my workouts to later on in the evening, um, I'm just wired. Um, so I think, again, you just kind of take the approach of I'm just going to do what I need to do um, and just kind of be a little bit more flexible in a sense. Um, it's tough, especially like the dehydration aspect of like, I'm thirsty throughout the day. Um, but again, you start to minimize certain things that you do outside and you just kind of figure out, okay, if I'm really hungry and thirsty, uh, the, the best thing I do is just take a nap and just try to tune everything out uh, through all of that. What are some, uh, this is for you, Dr. Tinsley. What, what are some ways to train if you want to attenuate the losses you may occur from Ramadan, what are some training suggestions that you would give for people fasting or going through Ramadan right now? Yeah. So that's an interesting question. Um, I remember reading and actually there's a, uh, there's a nice uh, review article, I think by, I think it was in 2013 in sports medicine by a researcher called Roy Shepard, who's done a lot of um, Ramadan work. And he has some really interesting information on this point. And one of the things he mentions is that oftentimes um, there is some loss of like exercise adaptations, um, maybe loss of lean mass and all this. But in many cases, it's because the athletes or coaches have decreased training volume sort of in, in, in anticipation of performance being worse. And in situations where training volume was maintained, even though that, you know, potentially be difficult to do when training volume was maintained, when dehydration was minimized and when total sleep loss was minimized, um, individuals were able to maintain performance well, maintain body comp better. So I think um, a recommendation would be to the extent possible, try to maintain training volume. Again, with a caveat that you probably won't be necessarily like, you know, crushing all your previous PRs during this month, unless like somehow the changes like are, are beneficial to you, but, but probably, you know, realistic expectations paired with maintaining training volume to the extent you can while also recognizing when you need to back off. So not being so married to, I have to hit my training volume that you're ignoring the signs of like, oh, wow, normally I wouldn't be overreaching in this volume, but I feel like I'm overreaching. Um, and then, you know, setting yourself up for injury or something like that. So big picture, getting close to maintaining normal training habits, normal training volume with the recognition that there could be some legitimate reasons you have to back off. Um, kind of paired with that was interesting there in that the same paper, they discussed that a really large um, survey of Muslim athletes during Ramadan. And I think it was, let me think about it. I think it was a quarter of the athletes believed just subjectively believe their performance was worse, um, during Ramadan. And, uh, many reported like lack of motivation, lack of training, enjoyment, all these things. So I think there are a lot of factors probably, um, you know, to your point, Adam related to being nutrient deprived, you know, whether it's productivity in, in the work sense or desire to train, um, maybe subjective effort during training sessions. There are some things that um, 
at the group level and definitely at the individual level would need to be sort of identified and just managed to the extent they can be. Yeah, I totally agree with the, you know, like the psychological aspect of it. Like sometimes you just really at night, you're just like, all I want to do is eat and you want to kind of pass out and then eat again. Um, but I think, again, that's a, a huge mindset shift. And I don't know if because this current period, I'm kind of prepping for a meet uh, in May where now it's like, yo, I'm just, I don't know. I just feel that much more excited or now currently I'm starting to enjoy maybe late night workouts because literally I've almost tried to almost completely do what I can do in that time frame um, of during and during the day where I'm fasting. And now it's like, okay, I don't have to worry about anything really. Um, I can just really focus solely on my workout. So I think a lot of it is, you know, mental. Um, if you're kind of going out, this is my time or, Hey, I, I, I've had a little, a, a little meal with some carbs and salt, and now I'm just going to perform as best as I can. Um, something that I, didn't even think of, but I read a paper recently that was just published with our uh, muscle lab was two a day workouts. And I was thinking, Hey, some, for some of my clients is okay. Why don't we wake up early in the morning? You can do either your, your main compound lifts. Okay. Go ahead, have a meal. Then you have fast throughout the day and then go back to the gym. If time is allowed and do more of your accessory movements. So now we're, Hey, we're still able to hit that, that volume threshold and we're not sacrificing intensity and effort through either one. Um, because I know for myself, when I would do my nighttime workouts, like I was thrashed doing squats and deadlifts. It's like, I didn't even want to do my accessories. Um, so I think something that I will play around with, uh, post meet is maybe heavy compounds in the, the morning, uh, pre-fast and then post-fast, I'll probably go back and maybe do my, some accessory movements and stuff like that. Um, but I, it's a lot of trial and error, definitely, uh, figure out something that works for you and, at the end of the day, you kind of almost have to be content of, all right, this is not the month where I should expect a lot of gains to be happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, but Dr. Tinsley, um, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I, I always uh, admired about you is you are uh, obviously a person that is always striving to learn. Um, and I think, you know, being in academia, you have to always be on that mindset of I'm always trying to learn and provide for my students and continuously grow for yourself. What are uh, your top five books uh, for anybody out there that you've got the most out of? And mind you, that's a lot. Five books. If you can't name off five, don't just tell Adam to shut up. <laughs> no, I, I can do five. It is funny when you, uh, you know, books, it's so much of the reading nowadays. It's like just resources online or research articles or whatever like that. But there, there's something, a book and especially like the tangible copy instead of just staring at screens all day. Yeah. So if it's, if it's completely open to just top five books that have been most um, influential in my life, uh, most don't directly relate to what I do vocationally. Um, the most influential book for me would definitely be the Bible. Um, after that, the Lord of the Rings, the whole Lord of the Rings series, I'm going to count as one book. Um, read it many times. There's a book called Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller, which is related to work, not related to like our field specifically, but related to like mindset about work itself. Um, Atomic Habits by James Clear, I really love. Um, it was mostly due to confirmation bias because I read a bunch of things. I'm like, oh yeah, like that's pretty much how I feel about this. So the big caveat is it was just like a big confirmation bias pat on the back. It's like, oh yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, just the way he he approaches things. Um, again, kind of about work. Um, last one that's honestly influential. It's weird. It's not a, a book with so many words, but um, Netter's Atlas of Human Anatomy. I spent hundreds of hours with this Atlas of Human Anatomy in my master's program when I was dissecting cadavers for a year. And uh, it just gave me appreciation for the human body like I didn't have before until I had, you know, my, my hands in a dozen, you know, dead people who had donated their body to science so people could learn and appreciate the human body more. So 
um, that's, that's five. I could definitely, um, list some more, but I'll, I'll leave those as my top five for now. I think it's very interesting as we start to do more podcasts and figure out what people like to listen to or what people like to read. I'm starting to hear a lot about atomic habits and I've never heard of that until I started doing these podcasts. So I, I think I'm going to have to hop on that and read it pretty soon. It's good. Yeah. It's definitely good. It's a very easy read too. And so now we have, you know, we have some listeners from obviously our master's program and other uh, master's degree programs as well. What are, I think, tips for individuals that are trying to pursue a PhD? What, are, what tips would you give to those individuals as well? Yeah. So um, first off, and I, I say this to students here too, and like some students don't, don't want to hear this person answer, but first thing I consider whether or not you actually need a PhD, whether you actually want a PhD. I've, I've talked to some people who from having a conversation with them, it turns out by the end of the conversation, they may, and I'm not trying to talk them out of it. I'm just asking questions, but by the end, they're not actually sure if they want a PhD. So if you're sure you want one, that's great. You know, I'd support that. Others would support that. But, but think about if you want it, why you want it. And I'll give a big caveat. When I went into my PhD program, I was not expecting to go into academia. Um, I was planning on probably doing something more entrepreneurial. I was thinking like, oh, it'd be cool to be ultra qualified. I really like school. I like learning. I'll get my PhD and then I'll kind of do um, something in the like fitness wellness realm. Um, I fell in love with human research. I love writing, love data analysis, all that. So I, I'm thrilled with where I ended up in academia, even though I wasn't expecting that. Um, but I think about with, with what you want to do, if you know what you want to do career-wise, do you need the PhD to, PhD to do that? So if you want to be a professor, if you want to conduct research at university, it's like, yes, you probably need that. Um, if you're wanting to do something like I did, maybe you don't need it. Again, the big caveat is if I myself took the advice I'm giving now, then I wouldn't have done my PhD and wouldn't be where I am. So take it with a, a big grain of salt, a whole salt shaker's worth. Um, but that's something I consider in terms of selecting a program. Say you do want to, you're sure you want to do a PhD, say you even want to go into academia. Um, think a lot about, um, well, actually this is just period. If you're doing PhD, think a lot about who your advisor is, um, the relationship of the PhD student advisor, um, even more so than undergraduate master's level will, will very much, um, define your experience in the program and possibly your prospects afterwards. Uh, there's certainly people who have, um, maybe even enjoyed their PhD, uh, gotten their PhD and been successful after, even without a supportive advisor, without a great relationship with their advisor, but it's definitely suboptimal. Um, ideally you could speak to some current students who will really give you a look at, at what it's actually like to work, um, with that advisor in that laboratory. Uh, another caveat is there are some programs that don't require you to actually have an advisor assigned when you enter. Um, ours does, uh, many now do. Um, so, so that's good. But if you, even if you're not required to, I would try to have an advisor more or less lined up and be sure you're comfortable with, with them. Um, if you are going into academia and, I'll give it some thought, like what type of university you want to end up at. If you're primarily going in for teaching purposes and you want exposure to research, you might want to do a research project on the side here, or there as a professor. Um, it probably gives you a little more flexibility, but if you want to go into a more research intensive job, say at a um, higher ranked research institution, you definitely need to go into a lab that's very active, very productive. Um, and I just say this because I've been on hiring committees here. And, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of applications for one assistant professor position on the tenure track. And we're looking through and um, for better or worse, often it's like, okay, how many pubs does this person have? How many are first author? Like how productive have they been? And there are many people who just don't have demonstrated productivity. So if you go into a lab that's productive uh, and in a quick way to check that is go to PubMed, search the name of your advisor, see like, what have they been publishing? What are they working on? 
Um, if you don't love what you see there, did they tell you something that would make you feel comfortable to say like, okay, you know, they've, they've been doing X for the last few years, but now they're transitioning and they're going to be starting up all these projects, you know, something of that nature. Um, so just give a lot of thought to what you want to do with the PhD. If it's in academia, think about what type of university you want to be at, what type of ideal split of research and teaching you'd have. Um, the more research oriented you are, want to be long-term, the more you need to get paired up with an advisor who's uh, in a lab that's going to be productive. And again, talking to current students in the lab, great way to kind of know what the day-to-day -day like is, uh, what the day-to-day -day is actually like there. Yeah, it's definitely, all, all of that is great advice. And I think, you know, finding out your why is definitely going to uh, push you through your PhD because I've heard a lot of, I don't want to say horror stories, but, oh, you're going to have these periods of times you're going to be asking yourself, why the hell did you do this? So yeah. definitely having a strong why to push yourself through it. And um, know that only growth is going to happen through it. So it, it's exciting. It's an exciting process. And I appreciate you. I appreciate all these, those other uh, PhD, those professors that are out there in the social media realm and making research more digestible because a lot of individuals, um, they're, they don't believe science in a way. So I think, you know, putting it out there, making it a little bit more digestible um, has made I think fitness in general, a little bit more digestible, um, a little bit more approachable for a lot of uh, people that are just wanting to consume it and live a healthier, happier life. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, your next step, you're already putting out the stuff, but a few more years, you'll tack that PhD on your name and, and be the next professor there bumping out the content. Or maybe he'll switch and go your uh, original route and become an entrepreneur. Maybe. <laughs> yep. It's all open. All right. Well, that was all the smoke with Dr. Grant Tinsley, guys. Uh, if you guys have any questions about time-restricted feeding, intermittent fasting, or if you just want to see the information he's putting out from his lab, he is on Instagram. Uh, is there where where can our followers find you? Yeah. So I am on Instagram. It's Grant underscore Tinsley underscore PhD. Uh, I also have a personal website, which is just GrantTinsley.com. Uh, which has pictures of our lab, information about our lab team, uh, links to our publications and, and all that type of stuff. So that would be a decent place to find out a little more as well. Gotcha. We'll make sure to put those in our show notes. And any last words that you might have for all, all of our, I'm going to say it, Chris, six listeners. <laughs> uh, no, I have no last words. I just really enjoyed the chat. I appreciate uh, you know, getting, getting some time with you guys. And um, yeah, nothing else to add. Thank you, sir. We will look forward to uh, seeing you at the ISSN here uh, in a couple months or weeks. Yep, absolutely. All right. Uh, thank, thank you. Sir. Have a good rest of the day. No problem. Bye.